to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. What is happening in our country today is beyond disturbing. Over the last four years of extraordinary growth and international realignment, in which the number of new jobs, the lowest unemployment numbers in history, the greatest international realignment in history, including a huge breakthrough in the Middle East that was unequaled by anything that has happened in the past, in spite of all this, President Trump and his legal team are in a fight against the agents of the deep state who have been trying to overturn the legitimacy of this president since his first day in office and even before. The president and his team are putting up a heroic fight against the forces of darkness that would destroy him and his presidency. It's something they have been doing for the last four years and more. The left and their little puppies in the mainstream media, they would have you believe there's no there there. First, they ignored the reports of illegal activities on the part of the Biden family, even when Joe Biden himself bragged on video in public about extorting the Ukraine government in order to protect his son's cushy job in a Ukraine company. And then they ignored not only the reports given by Biden associates, but even the incriminating revelations from Hunter Biden's own computer. Then they tried, and they're still trying, to invalidate the reports of voter fraud, both during and after the election. They're hiding the reports of crime and fraud, and they refuse to report them. They even ignore the sworn affidavits by people who have witnessed the corruption. And this is not acceptable. The fourth estate has lost its way completely, and they no longer report the news. They don't even try. They are now an arm of the Democrat Party. They spread the anti-Trump doctrine, their message, and support the far-left agenda without any embarrassment or shame at all. They're proud of it. Look, we've seen the vote stealing and the computer manipulation to alter red votes and create masses of blue votes to make red votes magically disappear or even more magically turn them from votes for Trump to votes for Biden. There are witnesses who have reported the appearance of masses of votes delivered in three vehicles that showed up at four in the morning in Detroit, 138,339 ballots. And all of them, every single one of them, were marked for Biden. In this massive ballot dump in the middle of the night, Trump got not one single vote, and neither did any other candidate. It was amazing, miraculous, in fact. In that single ballot dump of more than 138,000 ballots, the only candidate who got any votes at all was Joe Biden, and every one of those ballots was marked with a bulleted vote for Biden. Nobody else, nobody else on that ballot got a vote. That is statistically impossible, and anyone with an ounce of common sense 
or who didn't have a vested interest in the outcome would understand that in a heartbeat. This isn't coincidence, my friends. This isn't a freak thing caused by computer glitches. And it's more than about software. It's also about cheating by creating tens of thousands of phony ballots, of destroying tens of thousands of authentic ballots for Trump, burning them, tossing them in the garbage, changing the marks, and then lying about it. But there is a growing mountain of evidence that this has been organized on a grand scale and the planning goes back years. This is not conspiracy theory, no matter what the mainstream media says. This is conspiracy, and it's conspiracy at such a level that it threatens to destroy America as we know it. Because free and fair elections, as guaranteed by our Constitution, is fundamental to America as we know it. Without interference from political operatives, big money, and foreign players, it's an essential part of what has made this country great. And the loss of free and fair elections, if it isn't challenged to the fullest extent of the law, and if those challenges are not successful, it will destroy this country completely and in a matter of just a few years. That's all it will take to turn the great United States of America into Venezuela. But here's the good news. We have a champion. We have several champions, in fact. The first, of course, is the president himself, Donald J. Trump. He's amazing. He's a dedicated patriot who has promised to drain the swamp, and he has tried. But even he has admitted that the swamp and the deep state that he swore to destroy are far bigger and far deeper than he ever imagined. And now he is facing the result of his war against them. The president has been under siege every day without any let-up for the last four years. And what he can do now in this situation is, frankly, limited. But his war against them is based on the rules and requirements set down by the U.S. Constitution. He has the Constitution on his side. And that's saying a lot. But he needs more. Because his adversaries are less concerned about the Constitution than they are about their own power. They're making up their own rules. Forget the Constitution. And they have built their campaign against the president and our system of laws as a representative democratic republic. The Democrat Party and the deep state have been planning this massive attack on democracy for years, and Donald Trump is their primary target. But he has champions who have his back, and they are dedicated patriots who refuse to let our country be shut down by people who would like to destroy it. So people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Tom Fitton and Jordan Sekulow and many others too numerous to count, they are all working incredibly hard in a race against the clock to expose the fraud and turn the election results around. Honestly. As of now, they have less than three weeks to turn this massive fraud perpetrated by scoundrels into a victory for the democratic process as it was designed by our founding fathers. There is every indication 
given the enormous numbers of fraudulent votes that have been exposed already, that had the numbers of votes been tabulated honestly, Trump would have won in a landslide. And the fact that the numbers were, in fact, altered by fraud and corruption on such a massive scale has made the more than 73 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump understandably furious. Their votes were compromised, and in many cases, they were canceled. That is neither free nor fair. It is wrong. It is unconstitutional. And by the way, it is also illegal. So in today's environment of anger and violence, it is a very dangerous scene that we are facing on a national and a personal level. And here's why. America is deeply divided. I don't have to tell you that. It's been obvious for years. And ever since Donald Trump came down that escalator and announced that he was running for president in the 2016 elections, it has gotten a lot worse. Now, the corruption of the electoral process has been going on for decades. On a simpler level, it is probably as old as this country. We've all heard that old expression, stuffing the ballot box. That wasn't from yesterday. But we didn't pay much attention to it because... It wasn't happening everywhere. It was here and there. And when it did happen, it barely made the news. But this year, in the 2020 national presidential election, it was huge. It was nearly universal. It was manual and it was electronic. Elements of the corrupting software appeared in almost every state, but they were most apparent in the big cities in largely Democrat-run states. And the repercussions of this rampant corruption was that what had been a huge turnout for the president became a decided loss. And the mainstream media, partner to the Democrats, called the election for Joe Biden long before the votes had been officially counted. After the election, a new poll came out. Rasmussen reported that some two-thirds of Republicans and 30% of Democrats thought the election was or might have been stolen. So we have a situation right now in America that threatens to tear the country apart. The power play by the media and high-tech America, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and the mainstream media, to suppress the conservative voice by labeling it false and misleading and by censoring it altogether. This massive effort has disrupted our whole environment of free speech and First Amendment rights. You know, it seems as though the system is rigged so badly that we may never find out the truth about the outcome of this election. It reeks of treachery and fraud of the worst kind. And the treachery is against the American people by a relatively small cabal of Democrats who are determined to take political power by every means necessary. Take it away from what appears to be the majority of Americans. So here's the picture. A barely there candidate who didn't campaign defeated one of the most popular presidents in American history. It is far more than improbable. I think the fix was in from the very beginning, 
And that's why Joe Biden was allowed to stay in his home in Delaware and not campaign as any other credible candidate would have done. They knew he would win. So why risk having him say something stupid to ruin his credibility? Even more. The fix was in way before the election. I also suspect that the fix was in last year during the primaries. And that's how Biden won back then. Do you remember when in the very first race, the Iowa caucus, they couldn't say who won? It took weeks for them to figure it out. This isn't rocket science, my friends. I'm pretty sure they just couldn't figure out why the numbers didn't add up. Maybe they couldn't understand where fractionized votes came from. Those votes that gave maybe three quarters of a vote to the candidates they wanted to lose and something like one and a quarter votes to the candidates they wanted to win. The DNC got caught in 2016 fixing the race against Bernie Sanders. So this time they were much more careful and they used the electronic voting system to cover up what they were doing. They needed to defeat everyone except Biden, first in the primaries and then in the general election against Trump. Biden wasn't the best candidate. He wasn't even close. But maybe he was the most controllable. And he was definitely the one they wanted to win. So here we are. And the president's legal team is not giving up their mission to uncover the fraud and make these elections right so that the American people can reclaim the votes they cast for the president on November 3rd. Trump's team is working hard to challenge in the courts what they consider to be the wholesale fraud surrounding the 2020 elections and the theft of millions of votes for the president on November 3rd. Now here's a related story. On Sunday evening, Rudy Giuliani released a statement that was explicit in saying that Sidney Powell is not a part of the Trump team and in his words, is practicing law on her own. For fans of the attorney and the Trump legal team, this came as a shock, particularly after seeing her at a press conference with the team on Saturday just one day earlier, standing side by side with Rudy Giuliani. But the latest word is that this was actually an act to protect both Powell and the Trump team and not in any way a vote of disapproval, not by Giuliani or anyone else on the team. In fact, Giuliani made another statement on Tuesday morning in which he suggested that, quote, it's because we're pursuing two different theories, unquote. The Trump legal team, he said, is focused on misconduct of the election by state officials, which deprived the constitutional rights of the president. On the other hand, Sidney Powell is pursuing her claim that the voting machines, by manipulating millions of votes to favor Joe Biden, was the focus of her attention. And she plans to call for criminal investigations, she confirmed that she's not a member of the Trump legal team, and she is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity, she said. She went on to say, quote, I will continue to represent we the people who had their votes for Trump and other Republicans stolen by massive fraud, and we will be filing suit soon. 
The chips will fall where they may, and we will defend the foundations of this great republic. Unquote. It looks very much like it has been the power brokers on the Democrat side who have decided who our president will be, and not we the people the way our Constitution guarantees. And if that's the case, if the power brokers and not we the people chose the next president of the United States, then this is no longer the America that we have always known and loved. We have already become a third world country. And we have a lot of work to do. Now after the break, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about some other things beside the election. I think it may be long overdue. There's a lot going on in this country and in this world that go beyond the elections. And it's time maybe that we take a look at some of that. So stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world features some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. So here are some other stories that have hit the news over the past week. They don't have very much to do with the election, almost nothing. This one I like because it shows that all is not lost in this crazy country we call home. Do you remember a woman named Leila Khaled? She's best known as a terrorist and member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which was founded in 1967 and is totally committed to the destruction of the State of Israel. Khaled still revels in the role she played in the hijacking of two civilian airliners, one in 1969 and one in 1970. The first was an American plane, TWA Flight 840. It was on its way from Rome to Tel Aviv, and the second flight was an El Al Flight 219 that was flying from Amsterdam to New York City. By the time these flights were hijacked, 
the PFLP had already been designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. Department of State because of the large-scale international terrorist attacks which they took full credit for, including airline hijackings that killed more than 20 U.S. citizens. The PFLP is also blacklisted as a terrorist organization by the European Union. This terrorist group is also responsible for a slew of terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians in Israel, including an early morning shooting and meat cleaver attack when two cousins, Palestinians, charged into a synagogue during morning prayers and shot and slashed away at the men who were praying. They murdered four rabbis, including three Americans. The Abu Ali Mustafa Brigades, the military wing of the PFLP, took credit for the attack. The two Palestinian attackers were killed by the police, while in Gaza, Palestinians distributed candy to celebrate these bloody murders of four unarmed men while they said their morning prayers. So this is the group that Leila Khaled is so proud to belong to, and she is widely revered within the Palestinian national movement, but she is not a symbol of justice and resistance to me. Instead, she is a symbol of wanton terrorism, murder, and death. Nevertheless, this year, Leila Khaled, who is now 76, was invited by San Francisco State University to address a forum on gender, justice, and resistance on a Zoom platform. Khaled still speaks with fervor about her support for terrorism against Israel, but she was invited to speak as part of a September 23rd event, which was organized by the university's Department of Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Study on, quote, teaching Palestine, unquote. Her topic was, quote, whose narratives, gender, justice, and resistance, a conversation with Leila Khaled. And she is billed as a Palestinian feminist, militant, and leader. Jewish groups throughout the country were infuriated, and they slammed the university's decision to give Khaled a platform and Zoom for hosting it. In the end, Zoom canceled the use of its platform for this event, which raised another storm. Zoom said that the seminar might have violated federal laws and therefore the company's terms of service by providing material support for terrorism. Facebook followed by removing the live stream link and a page advertising the event. Facebook also threatened to shut down the pages of the event's sponsors. This was followed by YouTube, which shut down the live stream after the event had started. According to the New York Post, the United States Department of Education began an investigation into the university's invitation to Khaled on the grounds that it, quote, violated civil rights rules and the conditions of federal grants the university received. This brings up a question about how far-reaching the First Amendment can be used as a justification for airing in public, federally funded forums the radical opinions of terrorists that justify and promote violence and terrorism. And that is particularly true of organizations that receive federal funds that are used specifically for these programs? I don't have any easy answers. 
I am, as you no doubt know by now, a firm believer in the Constitution and everything that it stands for. But I also know that there are limits to the freedoms that are guaranteed in it. Last week, an Antifa activist claimed that violence against people that he attacked was permitted under the First Amendment. So where does it stop? When a terrorist who is proud to be a terrorist is invited by a federally funded university to speak about gender justice and resistance, with an emphasis on the word resistance, and she lives in Amman, Jordan, and is not an American citizen, why is she entitled to First Amendment rights? And why, by the way, is an American university inviting a self-proclaimed and proud terrorist to speak under their auspices? Is there a limit to free speech? When I was growing up, there were two sayings that I heard a lot that were used to define the borders between people. One went, your right to free speech does not allow you to shout fire in a crowded theater. And the other one went, your freedom ends where my nose begins. And maybe, although that's a bit simplistic, it helps to define the limits that we need to set for the freedom that we believe in. My freedom ends when it intrudes on your freedom or your welfare or your safety. And that, my friends, is what it's all about. And speaking of the Middle East, referring to the Middle East terror that Leila Khaled was so enamored of, Rashida Tlaib has done it again. And nothing is sacred, not even the man they call President-elect Biden. He made his first appointment to his cabinet, and his first appointment was Anthony Blinken. Blinken is a veteran of national politics in general, and of Joe Biden specifically. The mainstream media reads this appointment, the first in Biden's proposed cabinet, as a sign that Biden is going to do the opposite of everything that Donald Trump has done. And he is going to try to undo as much of what Donald Trump has done as possible. Donald Trump pushed back against our allies and our enemies alike, and with good reason. But Joe Biden wants to re-engage, and he is choosing his transition team accordingly. Anthony Blinken is nothing if not appeasing. In a 2016 interview with Grover, you remember Grover, the Sesame Street Muppet that lived in a garbage can? In this interview, Blinken said, quote, we all have something to learn and gain from one another, even when it doesn't seem at first like we have much in common, unquote. That's exactly the kind of thinking you want to teach your children when they're young, so they can get along with their schoolmates, their classmates, their friends. If only it worked so well with adults in the real world. But maybe that is really his philosophy, and Joe Biden wants him to apply it to our foreign policy. You see, Trump got it. He understood that you can't treat everybody the same way. You need to treat different people differently. It's about differences in culture, in language, in history. 
And that makes a difference. And Trump understands that. And he got results. He got European members of NATO, for example, to pay up their commitments for the defense of Europe, which they hadn't done in years. He reached out to Xi Jinping in friendship and got the first stage deal with China signed. And his team was working on the second phase when China unleashed a global pandemic on the world on purpose and Trump dropped Xi like a hot potato. He blocked travel from China when Xi was sending millions of Chinese travelers around the world during the early days of the coronavirus, and then he placed sanctions on the country. He also placed severe sanctions on Iran, much worse sanctions, as they tried to build their own nuclear arsenal in violation of the JCPOA, by the way. That was Obama's baby. A President Biden, with Anthony Blinken as his Secretary of State, is not likely to do that. He will cozy up to Xi and try to work a deal that will accommodate China. And with Iran, Biden has promised to rejoin the JCPOA. You know, the one where we give Iran everything that they want and without firm requirements for inspection of their nuclear progress? There isn't likely to be any America first in that administration. And in the Middle East, Biden is already talking about a two-state solution again. That's the one that has failed for the last 75 years because the Palestinians don't really want peace. They want Israel gone, and they have walked away from every peace deal that has ever been proposed by every president since Jimmy Carter. So now we get back to the story that I started about five minutes ago, back to Rashida Tlaib and Anthony Blinken. Tlaib doesn't like Biden's choice. She said, after she learned about his choice, so long as he doesn't suppress my First Amendment right to speak out against Netanyahu's racist and inhumane policies, the Palestinian people deserve equality and justice, unquote. Okay, so far. And then she went on to tweet, Secretary Pompeo has moved to suppress BDS, a peaceful protest movement protected by the First Amendment. I hope that Mr. Blinken and President-elect Biden's administration will change course from a Trump's State Department and not target our or suppress support of Palestinian human rights, unquote. Now, why would he do that? Why would she say that? And wait a minute. Did she say a peaceful protest movement, BDS? BDS stands for Boycott, Divest, Sanction, and it is specifically targeted at Israel. The whole purpose of BDS is to encourage the boycotting of Israel, Israeli products, Israeli programs, in order to bring about the economic collapse and the ultimate destruction of the state of Israel. So what Rashida Tlaib describes as a peaceful protest movement is anything but. CNN's Jake Tapper tweeted, quote, Blinken and Biden are both on record opposing efforts to punish slash sanction BDS, although they also oppose BDS. So I'm not sure what it is about Blinken that would prompt this tweet, unquote. Well, it seems pretty obvious that there is a backstory to this. There's an undercurrent. 
And a lot of conservatives and a lot of Jews understand that her comments are implying that Blinken would be biased towards Israel because of the fact that he is Jewish. And as far as Tlaib is concerned, a Jewish Secretary of State will favor Israel over the Palestinians every time. Tlaib has been accused of being an anti-Semite. In the past, she has said she's not anti-Semitic. She's just misunderstood. But she keeps repeating the blood libels against Israel, including a story, a false story, a terrible story, that Israel had executed a child. Recently, Tlaib was invited to participate in a panel discussion on anti-Semitism, and every member of that panel is a supporter of BDS. Ironic, no? The deeper meaning here is that this highly vocal member of the squad believes that every Jew who supports Israel has a dual loyalty and cannot be loyal to the United States. Last year, Tlaib tweeted this, which may be the very subtext that I'm referring to. In her tweets, she was writing about senators who voted against BDS, the program that wants to boycott Israel into economic collapse. She wrote this, quote, They forgot what country they represent. This is the U.S. where boycotting is a right and part of our historical fight for freedom and equality. Maybe a refresher on our U.S. Constitution is in order. Then get back to opening up our government instead of taking our rights away. Unquote. She was saying that votes against BDS were votes against democracy. Votes against her rights. Tlaib has a long history of accusing fellow congressmen of dual loyalty because they support Israel. And that's really ironic because her first and consuming passion is her support for the Palestinians. This is a classic case of projection where she blames Jewish legislators and others of dual loyalty, but fails to acknowledge her own dual loyalty to the Palestinians. Oh, wait, maybe... That's not really dual loyalty at all, because from where I sit, she has very little loyalty to the country that gave her the opportunity to become a congresswoman. That's just ingratitude. And one more story. New York City is now officially the third rattiest city in the country. The only rattier cities are Chicago, which came in first, and Los Angeles, which came in a close second. Only in Manhattan, the rats are the size of rabbits, and they're driving the people who are left in this city absolutely crazy. However did this happen? Well, if I had to guess, I'd say it was closing the restaurants and taking away the food supply that the rats had with the scraps from kitchens that made their way into the garbage. But when the restaurants closed, the rats had to find new sources of food. The rats got mad and hungry, and they got aggressive. City officials say that complaints about rats, despite the infestation, have been less than usual. 
Maybe that's because there are fewer New Yorkers to complain because so many of them are moving away. Or maybe they've just given up. It would help an awful lot if the city management, that yes, that's you, Mayor de Blasio, would arrange to have the garbage picked up more often so the dirty little critters didn't have so much to eat as they tear through the garbage bags that line the streets looking for a meal. A little cleanup might do a world of good, and it would make an awful lot of New Yorkers happier. Well, we're going to take another short break, and when I come back, I'll have some more of the latest stories about what's going on here at home and in the world at large. Something about China and also what's going on in the Middle East is absolutely amazing. Thank you, Donald Trump. So stay with me. I'll be right back. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy to swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company, Healthy Cell, is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot com slash sleep. President Trump recently announced that he plans to pull United States troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq by mid-January. And from my way of thinking, it's about time. This must have been a very tough decision because there are so many people who think that we have an important role to play there and we need to stay. But according to Acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller, 2,000 troops will be coming home from Afghanistan and 500 troops will be withdrawn from Iraq. That will leave 2,500 troops in Afghanistan and 2,000 troops in Iraq. It may not sound like we're pulling out a lot, and I wish more of our soldiers were coming home. It has been an important part of Trump's mission to bring our soldiers home from foreign wars and stop fighting them. So this, at least, is a bold statement. In this strange time following an election in which the outcome is still under litigation, there is no way of knowing with absolute certainty who will be in charge after January 20th. If Biden is ultimately declared president, and if he follows the Obama pattern, which it seems he's going to do, we'll be back in Afghanistan and Iraq in short order. And that'll be too bad. Obama did not start the war in Afghanistan. It began after 9-11, when our troops went in there to find Osama bin Laden. They didn't, by the way. Obama inherited the war, and except for the killing of Osama bin Laden, which was one of Obama's great triumphs, altogether, Obama fought this war badly. He sent our soldiers off to battle 
with instructions not to fire until fired upon, and with far less ammunition than they needed. He also sent social workers and psychologists to win the war of hearts and minds in a program called the Human Terrain Program. Several of the scores of participants in the program, psychologists, sociologists, they were killed or wounded in the course of this experiment, and a social scientist was actually set on fire. She recovered, but that's not the point. The Taliban took credit for that attack, and for them, it was a victory. This wasn't the place for social workers and psychologists. It was a place for our soldiers. It was a war. But our soldiers climbed the winding mountain paths of Afghanistan in long columns of tanks and Humvees, making them easy targets for the Taliban. It wasn't a place for that either. This was a guerrilla war that should have been fought by special ops, not columns of soldiers without enough ammunition to protect themselves or to fight back. Word was at the time that the war was managed by people with neither the experience nor knowledge of warfare to know what to do and how to do it. And our soldiers suffered and died because of this gross mismanagement. So now we may well have Obama's heir to the throne. Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. There's no way the American people signed up for this. And that brings me to another story. Remember the Batwoman of Wuhan? She's the virologist who was known for traveling all over China in search of bats to be the so-called guinea pigs for her work. And since the virus made its way around the globe, thanks to the Chinese government that sealed off Wuhan but sent millions of Chinese citizens to travel abroad to spread the virus to the rest of the world. Since then, this woman, the bat lady, her name is actually Shi Zheng Li, she has made a name for herself, and it's not a good one. So for the record, it has always been my opinion that this scientist, Shi Zheng Li, who works for the Chinese Communist Party, was responsible for the field research and the laboratory work that created the coronavirus that we now call COVID-19. Now, Wuhan is the capital of Hubei province in central China. Before the plague, it was one of the major manufacturing centers in the country. And it was in Wuhan that the government decided to build a level four virology lab, which was finished in 2017. Level four means the highest level of safety. And it was built for the study of the most high risk pathogens, including Ebola and SARS. But a biosafety consultant told Nature Magazine that he was concerned because of the lack of diverse viewpoints where openness of information are important, but in China, they were lacking. He was afraid that if it didn't exist in the Wuhan lab, there would be trouble. Moreover, my sources reported that safety protocols in this lab, in China in general, were often carelessly ignored. I first reported in January 2020 that an unknown virus had been under development in the Wuhan Institute of Virology when a lab accident resulted in the escape of the virus into the community. 
And this wasn't the first time it happened in China. In 2004, the World Health Organization confirmed that SARS, a precursor of COVID-19, had escaped a Beijing lab not once but twice. It had been carried out of the lab by two separate workers on two separate occasions, each of whom had become infected. The source of the new coronavirus was at first blamed on a live animal market in Wuhan, one of many. And then we began to see pictures and videos of hospital corridors swarming with people seeking medical help for the virus, hysterical, and videos of people simply dropping in the street, unable to take another step. In the end, the story that sorted itself out was that the Batwoman, Shi Zheng Li, who also was the deputy director of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, had identified the source and been the lead in developing the project. The source was a particular bat found in one of her many trips to bat caves in China, and the virus was a coronavirus related to SARS, but far more virulent. And then it was developed in the Wuhan Institute of Virology under the leadership of Shi Zheng Li. But this is an old story, you say. Why are you telling it now? Well, because Shi Zheng Li has now announced that newly reviewed and updated tests of blood samples taken eight years ago from a group of miners who became ill after working in bat caves in southwest China, these samples show that none of them were infected with COVID-19. So what? She published this revelation in an update to a paper she released in February to the scientific journal Nature. That's the same publication that published the original article about the Wuhan Institute of Virology when it first opened. Xi's revelation isn't startling, and it doesn't mean much, considering that she's actually being accused of manipulating the bat-sourced virus in her lab to make it something other than what it was into the nasty virus that has infected the world. She said that the genetic characteristics of the viruses she's worked on didn't match those of the coronavirus now spreading in people around the world. And if you want to believe that, it's okay with me. I don't. Of course, the miners were not infected with COVID-19 in that bat cave eight years ago. COVID-19 hadn't been invented yet. And it's not the same virus. It's new and improved and exponentially more dangerous because it was created in a laboratory by you, Dr. Xi. In the meantime, the virus has spread around the world and more than 60 million people have caught it. And more to the point, 1.4 million people have died from it. So, Bat Lady, take your self-serving pronouncements and live with the knowledge that you have changed the world and made it poorer because of all the beautiful lives that were lost as a result of your work. Honestly, I doubt she cares. Now, here's a happier story, still from China. It's about a huge change in policy that will address China's rapidly aging population and encourage couples to have more children. It's all quite ironic, actually. China used to have a one-child policy, one child and one child only, and if you had another, there was punishment. So what happened to the Chinese population? It not only decreased, which would not necessarily have been bad on its face because China's population was over a billion people, 
But since boy babies were favored, more boy babies were born than girls. In 2004, for example, the highest year on record, 121.2 boys were born for every 100 girls. What that means is that by 2020, this year, there were between 30 million and 35 million more Chinese men of marrying age than Chinese women. So the Chinese government woke up, finally, and in 2015, they ended the one-child policy after 35 years. That policy was instigated in 1978 when the government decided that the population was growing too fast and that couples would, from now on, only be allowed to have one child per family. So now they have a lot of catching up to do. And by the way, this is not only, I think, because of the imbalance between marriage age men and women. That's a given. But also, and this is a bit of a guess, there is a very deep mystery around the actual number of deaths in China as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. During the worst period of the pandemic, more than 21 million cell phones went dark. 21 million. And no one has been able to effectively explain it. Of course, the Chinese government is keeping a close rein on the numbers of victims and their numbers are unbelievably low. And I mean unbelievable. The math just doesn't add up. So the new policy, which was just announced, is to help replace all of the lost lives and opportunity for a more balanced population. According to the vice president of the China Population Association, yes, there is such a thing, he said, quote, more inclusive population policies will be introduced to improve fertility, the quality of the workforce, and the structure of the population, unquote. This does not sound like the Chinese people are going to have a whole lot of choice in their family size, any more than they did when only one child was allowed. Once the government gets involved in China, free choice disappears. But the story isn't over, because there is the elderly population that is part of this new policy, and the policy also addresses it. Sort of. In China, at the end of last year, there were more than 254 million people over 60 years old. And they accounted for slightly more than 18% of the population. Now, we don't know how many people, elderly people, were lost during the worst of the coronavirus. But if our experience here in the United States gives us any clue at all, we know that they were a vulnerable part of the population when it came to the virus. Anyhow, the latest figures forecast that by 2025, there will be 300 million people over 60 in China. Now, I hate to call people over 60 elderly because honestly, 60 is the new 40 in the United States and maybe 80 is closer to the new 60. I don't know. I, that, that's my guess. But in China, maybe it's different. In any case, the 300 million people over 60 in China by 2025 
is expected to put enormous pressure on the country's health care system. So an expert with the China Agency of Social Science said this, quote, to proactively tackle the aging population, urgent measures are required to reform the country's family planning policies and leverage fertility, unquote. Did you understand that? It must be Chinese logic. And if you understand it, please feel free to explain it to me. I haven't the foggiest idea what the relationship is between care for the elderly and fertility. But from where I sit, it sure doesn't look good for the old folks. Well, I think we have time for one more story. And it's one that makes me happy because it's a mixture of weird and joyful and a little bit of memory. And it's so American. As I was looking through my email today, I saw a video representation of all the airplanes that will be flying over the U.S. during the two days before Thanksgiving. It was on the New York Post website, and it was mind-boggling. It looked like a swarm of mosquitoes or a cloud of gnats. It was absolutely wild. So in order to understand the American spirit in the middle of a pandemic, one has only to look at this video and understand that we are far from losing the spirit that kept us going through the pandemic and through the election scandals and the year 2020 in which the surprises just didn't stop coming. The short form of all this is that Americans are traveling and they're traveling in large numbers. God bless them all. So who's traveling? Well, the TSA says that more than 3 million people passed through American airports last weekend. More than 1 million people traveled on Sunday alone. Thanksgiving weekend has always been the busiest travel days of the year. I remember traveling to the airport for a flight on Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. This was a while back. I was flying to Europe for a long weekend in London on a deal that was so inexpensive, I just couldn't pass it up. I know it sounds terribly extravagant, but I didn't have much money then, and it really wasn't. It was the bargain of bargains. I think the whole weekend was $500, and I felt very lucky to have it. Anyway, it included two shows in a nice hotel, but getting there was not half the fun. I left my home in Poughkeepsie, New York, and got on the highway. It should have taken about an hour and a half, and I left plenty of time, or so I thought but the traffic was murder and it took over three and a half hours. And then I had to park. Needless to say, I got there late. The good news was that the flight was delayed for unknown reasons and in the end I made it. But the stress was excruciating and I vowed never, never, never to travel again on Thanksgiving weekend. And after seeing that video, I think that was the way to go. Just a few more words before I run completely out of time. 2020 has been a difficult year all around. Every time we thought we were going to get a break, something else happened. It was just a year like that. With everything that we have been through this year, if your family is safe, if you are well, if your loved ones are still with you, even if you can't be together this year, we have so much to be thankful for. I want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving and a heart full of gratitude for all that makes our lives joyful. So to all my listeners, happy Thanksgiving. From my house to yours. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. 
I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.